as most of you know, we're looking at two, one Samuel, a uh, little bit by bit. Uh, last time we looked at Hannah's uh, prayer. It was uh, Palm Sunday, so I linked it with that phrase, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And we saw a few little things there. I want to move on um, to verse 12, uh, and the passage I read to verse 26. I've often said to you that one of the, the biggest problems for a preacher, in my little experience, is not always understanding what the, it actually says, what the Bible says, and I can explain in what it says. It's the application of it. Because we're not here to have a hist- history lesson or a lecture on what happened 3,000 years or so ago. We're here because we believe this is God's word and it's relevant as when it was written, and it's relevant today in Gordon Road in Hailsham in 2023. And there are lessons we can learn. Not everything is uh, directly applicable, but there are lessons, there are principles that we can learn from these things and can be a help to us. And I've also said that one of the problems is that as you go through it, you have to deal with things that you wouldn't ordinarily want to deal with. There's some very difficult things in this little passage. There's some very blessed things, but there are some very difficult things, some very hard things. And to be faithful to God's word, I have to mention them. But I confess to you, it's not easy, as you'll see in a moment. So let's, together, this is not me preaching at you, saying this is what you need to hear. This is what we need to hear. You and me, me and you. Okay, let's go straight into it then. Now, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. It's a strange beginning to one Samuel because we're told about this priest, Eli, and the first thing we're told about him in verse 3 of chapter 1 and this man went up out of the city, that's Elkanai, yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts to Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli. And that's the order. You would think it would say, and the, he went up to Shiloh, where there was Eli the priest who had two sons. But it doesn't. Now, the order, it seems to me, is deliberate. Now, you're saying, Colin, you're making a big thing of this, and it's just, that's the way it is. Possibly, but I don't think so. He has these sons, and they are mentioned before their dad. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now, when you start to look at this a little bit, you find out that, Hophni means Puglist. That's what his name literally means in the Hebrew. And uh, I got a little note here that they were known, Hophni, known for the brutality and lust. He, you can imagine him with a broken nose and ears, like a boxer or, or a Welsh rugby player. And uh, he's a nasty bit of goods is Hophni. And his brother is much the same. 
Phineas. It says literally, mouth of brass. He's got a big mouth, and it's a rough mouth, and it comes from a root meaning snake or serpent. These are bad boys. They're bad boys. And that's what it says there in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, verse 12, they were sons of Belial. Now, they weren't literally, right, sons of Belial. This was an expression that was used to describe somebody who was wicked, ungodly, evil, worthless, good for nothing. If you remember when uh, Hannah was praying in, in, back in chapter 1, and, and she's pleading before God, but she's not, nothing coming out of her mouth, it's not audible. She's pleading, she's crying, and she's there, and, and obviously in a state of, 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 of wretchedness, really. And Eli sees her, and he says, uh, this woman's drunk. How dare she be drunk in, in, in the sanctuary? How dare she? And he goes and tells her off. Don't, you shouldn't be here. Get out. Get out. And she says, don't count me as a daughter of Bilia. Don't say that I'm like one of these women who are worthless and hopeless and all the rest of it. I'm not like that. I have this burden on my heart. I'm crying to the Lord. Words are not coming out, but the tears are flowing. And then he realizes and he says, may the Lord give you, and so on. So that's the kind of boys they are. Now, it describes from verse 13, right, to 17, what they did. There's a little break then from 16 to 23 to tell us about Samuel. Then it goes back then from 22 to 25, back to the son's of Eli. What I want to try and do is to take the two sections beginning and at the end, take them together, and then look at Samuel on his own after that and seek uh, a gospel application or illustration from that. All right? So we look at what the Bible says about these sons in the first few verses, then last few verses, and see what we make of it. So verse 13 says, And the priest's custom when the people was when a man offered sacrifice. Now this is complicated, right? If you can understand this, you're a better man or woman than me. It's all to do with what God prescribed and regulated back in Leviticus and in Exodus. When God said that he would have a place where they would worship him, which was the tabernacle, later the temple, when God said that they would have a place that they would worship him and bring sacrifices, God dictated what should be done, how it should be done, and who should do it. It wasn't that God says, now listen, um, I think uh, it would be a good idea for you to, to worship me. Now what do you think? And Moses and the elders get together. Well, I, I know. Why do we build a little tent church? And why do we have this? And why do we have that? Big discussions. And they say, well, this is what we, we will do. And God says, okay, fine. God gives meticulous, absolutely meticulous instructions regarding the, the tabernacle and the building and the materials. And it's all there. And you read it and you think, oh, dear me. Why is this so precise? I can see easily, right, curtains. I know nothing about curtains. 
I know you can put them together and get things apart. I know that much. I'm a bloke. And I know you, there's different ways of hanging them. You have poles and you have rings and all kinds of things. And they look fine to me. Uh, and the colours are right. But there are people, oh, they know about curtains. They know to hang them. They know if they're straight or not. And all this kind of thing. Now, why is God so particular? Why is God meticulous in all these things now, the material? Because God is God. Because God is saying, in effect, you need to know I am God, I am holy, and you need to worship me as I dictate. This is too important for me to leave it to you. And every single thing I do, everything I dictate to you, has a significance. You may not appreciate that significance. You may not understand it. But it is significant because I say so. Now, I could go on at length of this, but uh, let me stay strictly to the passage. And this particular thing was to do with the offering. And it's there, the, the, the priests, remember, were to have a portion of the offering. And a person brought a sacrifice, and they boiled it, and, and then the, the, the priest's servant come along, and he'd dip his, his um, barbecue fork thing in, and he'd stick in, and whatever came out, that was the priest had, and so on. And that was what was laid down. But in this particular case, the priest's servant would come along and say, right, uh, we don't want it boiled, right? We want it raw. Then the priests, Hophius and Phineas, they then will cook it on the barbie and have, a, and have whatever they want. And if the man said, listen, that's not right. That's not what God has laid down. That's not what uh, Leviticus says. That, that's not the way to do it. Then this priest servant, who's obviously a big, tif- big tough guy, right, say, we don't care what you say. We don't care that you say it's laid down. We don't care that this is an offering to the Lord. This is what we want. Bang! Now, that's what happened. Right? By force, they were to take this offering and, uh, and do what they wanted to do. Now, we have this recorded in Holy Scripture. All right? And then verse 17 sums it up. I say, if you want to know the details, you can go read it afterwards. Because the wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before, before Yahweh. For men abode the offering of the Lord. Here is an offense toward God. It wasn't just the offering, the person who was making the offering and they were doing things that were wrong to him and in front of him and so on. This was an offense against God himself. And I sometimes wonder if we, we don't think so much about actions and sins that are against God. Now, in a sense, every sin is against God. The prodigal son says, when he comes to himself, I will go home and say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and so on. But this particularly, this is an ordinance of God. God has laid this down, and it's a deliberate act of defiance of God regarding 
his honor and glory and name. This is is high treason. It's not an expression that you use here so much these days, but um, it was an expression that our forefathers would have used, and there were obviously more things that that were, were covered by it. There was treason, and there was high treason. You offended the king. The king himself has been offended, or the sovereign, and uh, you were a great, great criminal. Now, how do you th- how do you apply this? Well, I go carefully. I go carefully because there are things that are happening in the world, in the religious world, that are very strange and very weird. Now, Tom mentioned a few things last week. Let me tell you where I'm coming from. This is me personally. I'm not speaking for anybody else. This is me personally. I know what goes on in places. I've seen them. I've been there. I've done this and all the rest of it. I get concerned. And there are things out there that are extreme. I don't want to mention it too much to you because it's, it's not pleasant. They're extreme. I'm thinking now in religious circles. Extreme. There are some that's not quite so extreme. My concern is that we get so taken up with the extreme that everybody who doesn't do what we do, say what we say, believe what we say, is extreme. That's not right. There are people that do and say things that we're not. They love the Lord. They love the Lord Jesus. They seek are seeking souls of the kingdom. They're misguided. They're, misunder- they're misinformed. They are ignorant of basic truths in the Bible. But they are the Lord's people for whom he died. So, personally, I, I try and go very carefully about that. I don't want to condemn them all. But having said that, there are some that are extreme. I watched a little program last night on YouTube. It was a conference from America, a nice, good, reformed conference. And at the end of it, they had question and answer. And the subject for the conference was strange fire. I won't tell you everything that was then. There you can, for those who know, you'll understand what probably the context of strange fire. And they were asking question, a question and answer with the speakers. And uh, he, there were some clips of services, religious services, in America. And it was just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. You think, what on earth is going on? Horrendous. But we haven't got to look across the water. It's happening in our own country. Just to bring in a moment what the other things they were guilty of, verse 22. Now, Eli was old and heard all his sons. Um, that is, Eli was old, verse 22, and heard all that his sons had done unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women assembled at the door of the tabernacle. He said to them, why do you do such things for I hear of your evil doings in the people? So in the realm of worship and spiritual things, they were wicked beyond measure. In the realms of morality, they were wicked and beyond belief. 
Now, what's happening in our country? You say you're on your hobby horse again. Well, only because to make this applicable, as it were, that this is real, this is happening today. Homosexuality is not new. If you know your Bible, this was the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. However, people try to interpret, reinterpret the crowd knocking the door of Lot saying, we want a man, that man to come out that we might know him. However, they try to reinterpret it, the basic teaching your adults, they wanted to have sex with these men, these men wanted to have sex with them. Now, that's its way back. But God, in his common grace, has restrained that over the years. And so in Britain, there was a time that it was illegal to practice homosexuality. In fact, it was a capital offence. If you were found guilty, you could be hung. But then they removed that capital offence. And then you could be a homosexual, but nothing open. It's still illegal. And then they removed the illegality of that. So now you can, but please keep it quiet. And then it moved that uh, you're encouraged to come out. I saw a little program once, it was something like a little quiz, just a little quiz and contestants there, and a man said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a gay man, and, uh, and everybody said, oh, wonderful, he's come out. What? What? You were, these are people who weren't homosexual, clapping a man who's home and confessing it. And then, of course, it goes further. Then they were encouraged to come out, and then they wanted some kind of recognition. And so they were allowed to have a civil partnership. But that wasn't enough. Then they wanted the ultimate, a marriage. And people say, how can you be married when marriage is for a man and a woman? Oh, no, that's not right. We can have a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And the law allowed it, encouraged it. Now, go right back to the beginning. This is why this is so serious. Go right back to the beginning. And the Bible says God made them male and female. God did that deliberately. For the proclamation, uh, of the, 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 of the procre procreation of the whole species. And so this particular thing, is a creational sin. Really is. And God has given us as a nation over to it. That's what he wanted? Have it. Have more of it. Have more of it. Have more and more and more of it. And it doesn't end it. Now with this trans business. Now, somebody say, I know you're typical, you're Christians, you're homophobic and you're bashing. Let me tell you this before we leave this little bit. Homosexuality is not the greatest sin in the Bible. Oh, the way you describe it is horrendous. Well, yes, it is. But, and I'm going to quote you in case you think it's my opinion, it was the opinion of the Lord Jesus, so it must be right. He said of a place called Capernaum that their sin in Capernaum warranted greater judgment and the sins 
of Sodom. That's what Jesus said. He said, you know, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are horrendous in the sight of a holy God, a pure God, horrendous. But you people in Capernaum have committed a sin which is worse than all that Sodom did. How can there be anything worse than that? And this was the sin. They rejected the words of Jesus. They rejected the words of Jesus. The eternal Son of God was in front of them, doing miracles and healings and teaching, and they did not want him. And they rejected him. He said, right. Your sins are warranting greater judgment than all that's happening outside in Sodom and Gomorrah. Imagine preaching that in some judges. Churches this morning, evangelical churches and not evangelical churches, and they hear things, they hear, tut, oh, it's bad, it's bad, tut, tut. And they see these little programs, uh, quiz stories, and, and, and who's this? This is my wife, this is my husband. Oh, this is, a man says, this is, my hus- this is my husband. How can I have two husbands? This is my wife. How can I have two wives? And uh, your heart or mine boils within. This is dreadful, this is terrible. But they are sinners who need a saviour. And in Corinth, there were some converted homosexuals. Look it up if you want. Chapter and verse, I think it's chapter 6. So my concern is not that these people were as bad as they were. And they were. But my concern is our spirit, yours, mine. Self-righteousness. It's a dreadful thing, even in believers. Again, Tom and I had a little discussion about some of these things, and I said, you know what makes my heart ache? There are good, reformed people who are proud of their reformed teaching and ways. And he said, I entirely agree. It's what's called technically an oxymoron. Contradiction in terms. How can you be proud that God has revealed to you the doctrines of grace and you're a worm and you're a maggot in his sight? Forgive the description, but it is biblical. How can you be proud? How can you be proud of believing these things? We do these things. We don't do that things. How can you be proud? Is this why God has brought no blessing to some places? You've got it all right. You've got it all right. What did Paul, uh, Tom, forgive me for quoting Tom, but it was last week, so I hope you remember. Uh, what did Tom say? Ephesus. What a church. Ephesus. Wonderful. Ephesus. I've got somewhat against you. What? You've left your first love. You don't love me anymore. I think that's the hardest thing in that list of sins there. It's the first don't love me anymore. You love other things. Things are more important. You don't really love me. Here's a verse for you. Of this God who inhabits eternity, the heavens of the heavens cannot contain him, dwells in glory and light, and also 
in him, in her, who's of a lowly and a contrite spirit. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? A lowly and a contrite spirit. Lord, the problem is not out there. The problem's in you. The problem's in you. I am the problem. You are the problem. It's tough stuff, isn't it? I need to move on. I need to move on. Now, this is the other hard bit. I'll promise I'll move on in a minute to, uh, to Hannah and Samuel. The problem was Eli's sons. This is a difficult one, isn't it? I've wrestled with this. I really have wrestled with this. Because I know that some of you, like me, have relatives so dear to us whom we love so much. They're not walking with the Lord. Could be children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, cousins, whoever. Almost all of us, I guess, without exception, have someone for whom we care who's not walking with the Lord. And it's difficult. What do we do? It's difficult. Now, Eli was a good and a godly man to a certain extent, but he had his flaws. And one of the flaws he had was putting up with these boys. Now, he did reprimand them towards the end of that passage I read, and he told them off, but that wasn't enough. He should have kicked them out. He should have kicked them out of the priesthood. He shouldn't stop loving them, shouldn't stop caring for them, shouldn't stop praying for them. But he should never have allowed them to continue as priests. And was it the fact that they were his boys that clouded the issue? It can do. Please, please, uh, believe me, I try and say say this as sympathetically as I can, but sometimes our love for our children gets in the way of seeing how bad they are. And we make excuses for them. I was thinking way back when I was a little lad. Knock at the door. The woman comes. This is Jones for number 10. Mrs. Lyshen, your boy Colin has been leading my little Billy into trouble. You need to sort him out. My mother could have said, my little boy Colin, my little blue-eyed blonde beauty, never, never, ever would he lead somebody into trouble. My mother didn't do that because she knew the truth. She said, as she said or something to the sim, to effect, I love words with him. She had words with me via the slipper. You know what I mean. She sorted me out. Now it's difficult. But poor Eli. He just couldn't cut it. And things got bad to us. Anyway, let's finish with a nice story, right? That's, That's that. That's that. So let's go back to verse 18. Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, good with a linen ephod. He had a little apron, right? Um, 
small size, little apron, and he ministers to the Lord. Thank God for those children who serve the Lord in any way, whatever. It's lovely to see the little ones. And growing up, we trust in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't know much about altar boys. I never was when we didn't have in chapels. Um, but I guess that they do the little duties in the church, and they do this, and they put that, and they clean up afterwards, and all the rest of it. Well, Samuel did something like that. And then there's a verse in Holy Scripture, which has very little to do with anything, so it might seem, but it says, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought him brought it to, to him year after year when she came up with her husband to the sacrifice. Remember? Hannah's given the, Samuel to the Lord and he's there, so he's, he's boarded away, as it were, in, in the tabernacle. And every year she comes up and she's made him a little coat because he's growing up. He's a little lad and he's growing. And this last year's coat is too small for him. She gets him a new little coat and then she makes another little And she, she's a mother. She's a mother who loves this little lad and wants to provide for him and looks after him and cares for him. She's given him to the Lord. He's the Lord's. But she doesn't say, right, you've got him. Get on with him. You look after him. No, no. Every year she brings a little court. She loves this little lad and she provides for him. It's it's wonderful. It's a lovely little story, little verse. I love it. I can imagine coming up and saying, Samuel, oh, ma'am, ma'am, nice to see you. And he's looking at a little parcel, of course, not them. and then, you know what boys are like, and come on, oh, another new coat, <laughs> another new coat. It's a lovely little verse. And, and, we're told Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to you. And they went back there. So it's as if Eli say, You have been so good. You have been so kind in giving the Lord your son. May the Lord reward you and bless you with even more seed, i.e. more children. That's what it seems. Well, verse 20. And Eli blessed Elkanai and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed for the woman, for the loan which is lent in the Lord. And they went to the house, and the Lord visited Hannah. Remember, the story starts off with having no children. She is barren. The Lord has closed her womb, as it were. You remember the other wife, Penai, who makes a big thing about the fact that she's got children by Elkanai, and Hannah's not a, ho- not a nice lady. And now here's Hannah, and the Lord gives her three sons and two daughters. And if my maths are correct, that makes four sons with Samuel and two daughters. There's six of them running around. Wow! Isn't God good? Isn't God good? He's blessed her abundantly. Not just say, well, right, you've given your son, I'll give you another son. So you'll have a son uh, and so on. Oh, I'll give you a daughter. Nice to have daughters. All right. And, but no, three sons, two daughters. Whoa, what more do you want? He blesses us so much. God is good. I want to stress to you this morning, having done all with the judgment bit, God does judge, but his delight is in mercy. Have you got that? He will judge in a horrendous way as befits his judgment and his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. God will judge, but his delight is not in judgment. His delight is in mercy. He loves to be merciful. He loves to be kind 
his people. Hallelujah. Forgive me for this, but I can't help thinking about Hannah and her other lady, Penna. Penny, I call her. Penny. I wonder what she said. I know what I'd say. Hi, Pen. How you getting on? Oh, you can see I'm pregnant again. This is a six now. Amazing, isn't it? I got the others here. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> no, I don't think I, I don't think Hannah would do that. that, that that's me. That's what I would do. But Hannah is gracious. I'm sure she, she tried to be friends. I'm sure she tried to get on, even for the sake of the kids who played together. I'm sure. That would have been her reaction. And finally, finally, the way of a little illustration. Eli was a priest, and all that that meant under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the laws of sacrifice and so on. He was a priest. He was good and he was godly to an extent. But he was flawed. He was flawed. Priest was meant to be a representative from God to man, from man to God. The priest was to offer sacrifices that would be acceptable to God on behalf of the people. He was a mediator, uh, uh, intermediary, uh, umpire, for like, or as Job uses the phrase, a daysman, somebody between us. And Eli should have been that, but he wasn't perfectly. But let me tell you, let me finish on this. There is a priest who is faithful. You know where I'm going. And you're beginning to love it already. I can see it in your faces. We need somebody to intercede for us. We need to have someone come in between us and God. We need someone whom, of whom God will approve and of whom we will approve. We need a mediator. We need an umpire. We need somebody going between. We need a faithful priest. And right into the Hebrews, it's full of the priest and the priesthood and the high priest in particular. And it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our faithful priest. Begins in Hebrews 2 verse 17 and goes on through most of the book. The Lord Jesus Christ, appointed by the Father, sent by the Father, anointed by the Father. He comes. He's totally accepted and acceptable to the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's a relationship between the Father and the Son that is eternal, that is holy, that is pure. And you read it, particularly in John's Gospel, how the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Son. And this union they have. Wow. And he sends this son to be a faithful high priest on behalf of his people. And the priest would come, particularly on the Day of Atonement, and he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. It had to be the best of the flock or the best of the, of the cattle or best of whatever it was. It had to be the very best without blemish, without spot. And the Lord Jesus figuratively, figuratively does that. He offers a sacrifice without sin, without blemish, 
pure and perfect. What sacrifice does he offer? Himself. Himself. No lamb, no bullock, no goat. Himself. And this is what happens at the cross. You will say, well, he had no say in it. He was taken by violence. And violent men had put him on the cross. And they did. Yes, see, that's what happened. Actually. But in the purposes of God, this was according to plan. That he should be taken. That he should be slain. But in effect, what was happening spiritually, he was, as it were, offering himself as a sacrifice of sin. He was saying, as if he was saying, Father, these people whom you have given to me, they cannot ever fulfill righteousness left to themselves. They can never make up uh, by doing good things for the bad things they've done. They can never ever earn salvation. Their sins need to be cleansed. They need to be forgiven. They need to be visited with your wrath, but not on them. Father, visit me on their behalf. I give myself to you and visit me with your wrath and your condemnation for their sins. And he dies as a substitute for all who believe. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing wood. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. When Hannah brought this little coat every year to Samuel, I don't think it was ever too small or ever too big. Mothers know these things. They know these things. And every year, it fitted him exactly. This is our thing which to teach the children. J-E-S-U-S. <coughs> Jesus exactly suits us sinners. Whoever you are, whatever you are, Jesus has provided a robe of righteousness for you, as it were. Exactly fits. I'm a bit small, not personally. I'm a bit small, as someone say. His righteousness fits me. I'm a bit large, as someone. His righteousness fits me. Very good, very bad, anywhere in between. His righteousness will fit you. Come to him. Call upon him. Say to him, Lord Jesus, save me. And clothe me with your righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess it so challenges us wherever we are, whatever we are. We need more of your word by the Spirit to bring reality to our lives, to call us up as it were. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in life in a way everlastingly. Father, we thank you for a faithful high priest. What a contrast. Pure, perfect. I do always those things that please him, you could say, in complete modesty and honesty.
always, everything I say, everything I do, everything I think, pleases my Father. And ultimately, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. I'm going to sing a hymn, what you know. Two five eight, two hundred and fifty eight. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. The great High Priest, whose name is Love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven in His hands, my name is written on His heart. I know that. While in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. 258. Before the throne of God above, I have...